Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from a cool and drizzly evening here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, furthering our exploration of the Wuhan flu COVID-19 scamdemic, focusing on a detailed cost-benefit analysis of the lockdown measures here in Canada. Joining us today is Dr. Douglas Allen. Dr. Allen is an economics professor at the Burnaby Mountain campus of Simon Fraser University. His research in the field of institutional economics for, spans four main areas, transaction cost theory, agriculture, family, and history. He is the author of two popular undergraduate microeconomic theory textbooks, several other academic books, and over 70 articles. His most recent book, The Institutional Revolution, Measurement, and the Economic Emergence of the Modern World, won the ISNI 2014 Douglas C. North Award for the best institutional economics book published in the past two years. Since 2004, Professor Allen has been a senior consultant for the Delta Economics Group in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he provides consulting on cases related to family law, discrimination, intellectual property, and antitrust matters. He has also lectured internationally at several colleges and universities, including the Giblin Lecture at the University of Tasmania and the Janus Lecture at Brown University. Professor Allen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time this evening. It's a great honor to be able to speak with you. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Hope I can live up to all that hype. <laughs> there we go. So maybe we should start today with a little bit of background on yourself. And if you could share with the listeners uh, your motivation uh, behind pursuing your field of study and how that came about. Oh, how I became an economist. Uh, almost by accident. I, uh, I was heading off to law school and I thought I'd be a corporate lawyer. So I was taking all business courses, hating every one of them. <laughs> but as a result, I had to take econ courses along the way, loving those. And I just decided, well, maybe I'd take a slight detour and do a master's degree in economics before law school. And I did so well in that. I decided, well, I'll just do a PhD. And I ended up in this career. Ironically, my field, you know, what you mentioned, those fields that I'm doing, uh, institutional economics is sometimes referred to as law and economics. And so I, I do a lot of economic analysis of law. Family law, as you mentioned, antitrust law, property law, et cetera, et cetera. So, in some ways, I ended up where I thought I would be, I guess. But yeah, it was a it was an odd road, but here I am. Uh, that's excellent, and it's been a um, uh, rewarding experience along the way for you. You know, I, I don't know what the future is going to be like for academics, but for me, it's been a fantastic life. I always say it's a little bit like being your in business, you're your own boss, but you can't go out of business. And so, uh, you know, you kind of, you study what you want, you think about what you want and write about what you want. And that is a great privilege and, and freedom. And, you know, this COVID report that we're going to talk about, that's not something that I would normally do. But of course, when last March rolled around, I was as puzzled as everybody else was and decided, well, yeah, I'm going to look into this. And I had the freedom to do that. Yeah, that's good. And, and I'm surprised that uh, given the sort of woke mentality that uh, seems to permeate most of our uh, academic institutions these days, uh, that there wasn't a lot of blowback, uh, or has there been from you publishing that article? I think for the most part, I'm still under the radar. So it is going to be academically published. And uh, but that's still it that probably won't come out for another month or two. And who knows what the attention will be. But at the end of the day, I mean, what are they going to do to me? They're going to say, oh, you, you, what, are you, what are you doing your job for? I mean, so, <laughs> uh, I, I, at most, maybe people will frown at it, but I, 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 I don't think there'll be too much pushback. I've done oh. far worse. 
All right. Well, that, that's good. I mean, certainly we're seeing a lot of pushback from some of the uh, the medical academics that are uh, providing a counter narrative to the official narrative, and and they have been uh, harassed and condemned uh, quite quite severely. Yeah, the difference is probably that you know there aren't too many economists who have been pushing for you know they're not at the forefront of pushing for lockdown, etc. Whereas in the medical professions. It's often been medical, you know, people in epidemiology and these other related public health fields that have been pushing for these things. And so when somebody in their own crowd says, wait a minute, uh, you know, they get attacked. So that might be a big difference. Right, right. And certainly I think this is the very interesting paper because it does discuss, you know, what the other ramifications. I mean, obviously anybody that's watching the mainstream news are, are observing the federal uh, deficits of many Western nations uh, rising at an incredible level. And, you know, we're seeing the handouts left, right and center from the governments in related to this. But uh, it's interesting to see those numbers quantified and then measured between action and no action. Yeah. So... Sort of like economics 101, you know, when I'm teaching my principal's class and, you know, I try and teach them about how, you know, how does an economist think about the world? One of the basic things that you can learn is that all decisions have benefits and costs. Yes. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? And so when you're trying to assess a decision, a policy, a choice, whatever, you want to look at what were all of the benefits and what were all of the costs. And that's something that has been so absent and missing this past year that it's just staggering. And today I had a email from, I won't say what major news outlet it was, asking about a, the same old question about COVID. And I just asked the person, you know, what about the costs? Mm. Yeah, just not interested. How <laughs> goes my mind? Well, I, I suppose when the federal finance minister has a Russian lit degree, maybe some of those nuances of uh, econom economics uh, have uh, baffled her or, or she simply doesn't comprehend them. I suppose. But I mean, you think of all the policy people that have supposedly been thinking about this problem all year long. Wouldn't I don't know what goes on in public health policy, but I would sure hope that they would talk about, you know, all the costs and all the benefits. But maybe not. But well. <laughs> Time will tell, but I think we're probably on the latter. I think there's not a whole lot of consideration for, for that. So in your uh, well-documented uh, article, you, you've stated that um, the means in which uh, the government has gone about handling COVID-19 here in Canada in terms of the lockdowns uh, could go down as one of the greatest peacetime policy failures in Canadian history. Uh, can you elaborate on that statement uh, for the listeners? So I, I, I don't know if you were in British Columbia at the time, but, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, we had a major policy disaster in the province called the Fast Ferries fiasco. <laughs> that, that brought down the government. That was a major issue at the time. But if you were to ask, how much did the costs exceed the benefits on that Fast Ferries fiasco? The answer is about three. That the costs were about three times as high as the value of those ferries and but that was enough to bring down the government i in my little cost benefit estimate using sort of i think conservative numbers uh i i get 280 times is the ratio of the cost to the benefits and really i in the new published version of the paper that's coming out they asked me to give a range and so the range is actually about 280 to about 3,000 times. I mean, it, oh, it's wow. just, 
it's so staggering that it's hard to even comprehend. I, I honestly can't think of anything that can come even close mm. that to, yeah. in terms of how many, how many costs we've incurred versus, uh, you know, what presumably the benefits would be. And we're, you know, the amazing thing about the COVID this last past year and a half is that there's never been as much research done on a single topic in such a short period of time as being on COVID. And the and estimates of these costs just keep rolling out, rolling out. And there was one last week looking at the, um, the effect on life expectancy of a lost year of school. So in the U.S., many states, the schools were literally shut down for the entire year. Um, and so when you shut somebody's school down and rob them of a year of education, they're less likely to graduate, their lifetime earnings are lower, and when lifetime earnings are lower, uh, you don't live as long. So that's kind of a well-known relationship. And they were sort of estimating this chain of events and estimating what the effect was on, on, uh, on, on lost life. And they came up with 14 million life years, which if you take the average age in the U.S. of a COVID death was 75, their average life expectancy is, I think, 12 years. That converts to 1.2 million deaths of 75-year-olds. That's just one little effect of the cost of lockdown. Just that's in one corner of lockdown. We, we shut schools down for a year. And the consequence was that's equivalent to killing 1.1 million senior citizens. We only lost in the U.S. 600,000 people from COVID, many of whom would have died anyway. So, I mean, that just gives you some example of the staggering cost of, of what we've been doing. Yeah, that, that's an interesting statistic, uh, Professor Allen, and, and certainly really brings it into focus, uh, you know, how important uh, these decisions have been and how detrimental they may be as we move into the future here. Right. And the problem, and of course, it's a hidden cost, right? Because these are people that are going to have a shorter life expectancy. They're going to die in 2035 instead of 2045. And so, you know, it's easy to sweep these things under the rug. And, uh, you know, there was an increased spell of unemployment. Most of these things happen in the estimate these things for the U.S., not Canada. But in the U.S., you know, there was increased unemployment over the year. And the estimate is, is that that constituted about the loss of 800,000 lives. Because, again, increased unemployment, reduced income, reduced nutrition, lower life expectancy. And when you convert that into lives lost, it amounts to about 800,000. So there, we're already up to 2 million people that have been killed by lockdown. And we're just getting going, right? Uh, so... Uh, like I, said, I think it's the other, it, absolutely. And the other group that I think is often missed in these calculations are, are the really young people. I mean, any, anybody that was born, let's say from sometime in 2018, right up until, you know, present day, um, the, the, the damage to their early childhood development or the early life development, you know, they may never get that time back in terms of understanding nonverbal communication and just that, you know, bizarre world that they've now been growing up in of social distancing and masked and, and, you know, how can we even quantify some of the, the issues that those young, young people are going to have uh, over their life? Yeah. Nobody's even thought of looking at something like that now, but, uh, I think I, you know, this is my own personal viewpoint here now. And again, I don't have any evidence of this yet, but so my, my research area, as you mentioned earlier, is on institutions and why are institutions and the rules we live by so fundamentally important for growth. They're far more important than the natural resources you have. You can be sitting on all kinds of resources, but if you don't have the institutions to, uh, 
put those things into production and, and, and create wealth, you, you go nowhere. So, and institutions turn out to rely on something called social capital and social trust. And uh, so when I meet you and you email me and ask me if, you know, I'd come on your podcast, you know, it's really important that I, you, you know, you and I are part of a society and that I can trust that you're not trying to, you know, get access to my computer and, and uh, you know, take all my great economic insights or whatever. <laughs> you know, we interact <laughs> with strangers all the time. And uh, we live in a world where we don't have to worry about being shot by strangers or mugged by strangers or beaten up by strangers for the most part. And there are many parts in the world where that is not true. Yes. And, uh, and when we impose mask mandates and we tell our children, you know, you must stay away from that person. Why? Because he could kill you. What do you mean he could kill me? Well, he's carrying a germ that could, you know, we are just destroying this sort of deeply ingrained uh, institutional social capital. And who knows what the consequence of that is going to be. Well, well said, sir. Well said. And there also appears to be a real dichotomy between those institutions, whether they're the mainstream media, uh, public health agencies, uh, and obviously the, the political class uh, in their response to, to, the, to the pandemic in comparison to what the emerging real science is telling us. Um, you know, and in this case, I think of a gentleman like Peter McCullough and his team. Uh, what do you attribute that divergence to? Well, I, I call it a bad equilibrium. So imagine you're a political leader of no particular nefarious bent or anything like that. You're just minding your own business running a country. Uh, and a virus comes along that you are told by the quote unquote experts that this is going to be unlike, this will be like smallpox, right? Uh, it's going to make SARS look look like nothing, et cetera, et cetera. And you're noticing other places are locking down and you have no real information to go on. And so then you decide to follow suit. Why not? You know, you're going to be the lone wolf that takes a risky strategy or risk averse and you, and you follow suit. So this is like the end of middle of March last year. One country after another did this. And then you find out in the first couple of weeks of April, that's when you sort of get the first mortality data, I think, came out of South Korea. And then you find out that hmm, the virus has actually natural mortality. It's not killing children. It's not killing 30-year-olds. It's not really killing anybody over 70. And it looks like even back in the early weeks of April, it looks like only sick people are getting, are really dying. And certainly by the end of May, we know this with almost a certainty, is almost every country was coming up with data like crazy, that the, that the virus had what we call natural mortality. And so even in the earliest of May, we knew many you know, people in the, in, that were studying this kind of knew that there wasn't going to be a huge shock to what we call excess mortality. <laughs> Over the course of the year, the number of people that were going to die above what was going to be expected, it, there may be some. I mean, it's, it's common to have people, more people die in a year than, than are expected, but it was not going to be anything uh, outrageous. But now you're a politician or you're the expert who put all his money on stake on this model. What are you going to do? Well, you can admit to everybody that you're wrong and you just kept them home for three weeks. And there was a 30% drop in the stock market. A third of wealth would disappear. Oh, oh sorry about that. Is that what you're going to do? No, you're going to double down, right? You're going to double down and say at best, you know, we have to come out of it slowly. 
right? Death is at your door. Uh, you're going to find, re you're going to say things like, you know, earlier you said two weeks to bend the curve, but now, now you got to come up with something else. You're going to say, uh, you know, the hospitals will get overrun or, you know, there's going to be a, a variant or, you know, you know, you know what all the things that, how the goalposts got moved. So I think it makes perfect sense. There's no, I don't believe there's a big conspiracy. I just think it is in the private interest of every public health person that was involved in making policy and every politician that was involved in making policy. I think it was in their private interest to continually double down until either it goes away and you can could declare victory or it goes away for as, as, as a long enough time period that you can call a quick election and get reelected for another four years when it certainly will be all gone one way or the other. Yeah. So I think it makes perfect sense what they did. Kind of sounds to any of the truth coming out. Right, right. I mean, it kind of sounds like the Afghanistan conflict. Just keep shoveling the the manure until uh, the pile's so big that hopefully it topples and something magical emerges in the middle of the pile. I mean, it's sort of a strange, uh, it's a strange way to carry on business. And I understand what you're saying in terms of saving face and and uh, trying to hope for the best outcome in terms of the, you know the the virus going away. Um, I'm not sure we're seeing that yet. I mean, we have Teresa Tam. Uh, telling us there's a fourth wave coming and, you know, now we're looking at booster shots for the vaccine and it's, it's uh, you know, it's double down, double down, double down exponentially. And, you know, where does that lead? Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I mean, as long as the virus is here, you're going to expect the doubling down to continue. Mm. And, uh, you know, what will eventually happen is the, you know, we will build up enough immunity either through vaccines or just natural infections that, COVID will just become, in all of its variations, it'll just become like H1N1, the Spanish flu, or any other virus that's been around for decades and decades, is that, you know, it'll kill the odd person here and there, but for the most part, it'll be inconsequential, and, and then the politician can declare victory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that may be what we're, you know, that there may be a point in time when that happens and it'll all go, go away and they'll all pat themselves on the back for the great job they did. So the reason why there was so much hostility to places like Florida, South Dakota, Texas, Sweden, Finland, you know, uh, uh, I want to say Croatia, but I better be careful. The reason why there's so much opposition to these places that did not lock down in a serious way is because they present what might have happened in the alternative universe. What would have happened in what we say the counterfactual? What would happen if you? What would have happened if you kept kids in school and didn't force them to wear masks? Well, we know what happens. Nothing happens. And so that, that, that takes away from, that rains on the parade. And, For sure. uh, and so that's why these, these places have to be uh, put down at every opportunity. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, before we get into the, the, the guts of your paper, uh, throughout this whole scandemic, I, I've been saying that, you know, what the world is really suffering for is, is a, an utter lack of science, math, and history education and knowledge amongst the population. And had the population had sort of better education in these basic tenets of, of life, there probably would have been more critical thinking and this fiasco never would have accelerated to the point that it, it is today. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, in order to do critical thinking, you have to have, you know, I mean, suppose I am a critical thinker. Uh, if I don't have the information at my readily disposal, uh, then what am I supposed to critically think about? And so that I think has been a, maybe a more, a deeper issue is that, you know, there's been sort of this monolithic, one-sided, 
daily voice presenting us with information. And it's, I don't want to say it's been false at times, but it's not always been the whole truth. And it is not always uh, explained. Suddenly, they, you know, there's a switch between talking about rates of infection and levels of infection without knowing full well that most people in the audience aren't going to pick up on the difference or talking about levels of infection as opposed to, you know, the levels per, per million or something like that. So I think what would have helped more is that people had better access to data. Now, one thing that I have been doing every time I meet a stranger, every time somebody talks to me about this, and I will tell you the same thing, and, and hopefully you can share it with your audience, is there is a data source. It comes out of John Hopkins University, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Our World in Data. It is a, it is a, it's not just for COVID. You can go there and look up GDP, population, you know, whatever you want there. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time, completely legitimate. What they've done with COVID, it's amazing. So you can create these, any graph you want, any piece of information you want. And uh, I've actually got it open right now, just so that if you ask me some question, I can very quickly look like a genius and, and look up the answer. But I can pick any country in the world, any continent in the world. I can look at everything from deaths, variants, cases, fatality rates, tests, number of people in hospital, excess deaths, you know, ICUs, anything I want, and I can get it for any day of the year for the last year and a half. Um, and I've had this, I've had this laptop or this webpage open wa watching the news for most of this past year, because when I hear somebody on the news say something about India or Sweden or whatever, I immediately go and look. So, you know, last week, everybody was talking about Iceland because Iceland, you know, has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. It's an island country that has had really restricted people in and out. Uh, it looked like they had totally conquered COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they're experiencing this third wave of the uh, Delta variant. And so you can very quickly go on there, have a look. Yes, there's a third wave in terms of cases. But then you can also just very quickly look and guess what? Nobody's died for 21 days. Hmm. So, you know, you very you, you see that it, it, it's true. They're having a third wave of cases. And it's true. You can look up and see that it's 100% Delta variant. Uh, but you see the rest of the picture, which is these are just young people unvaccinated getting infected. And, and they're not they're not dying. I mean, it's they're getting the equivalent of a cold. I mean, so you realize it's really not that big of a deal, is it? Yeah, so it's almost a bit of propagandization of the of the true data into to morph into their version of reality that they're that they're pushing to the public. That's what I mean, I mean, you can tell people the truth, but if you don't tell them the whole truth, then you can you can manipulate what they believe. Yes, yes. So moving on to your paper then, and before we dig into the details, uh, what is the rationale behind the paper? And there, we're going to be discussing some some terms, which uh, maybe we need to sort of highlight uh, so people understand uh, better the conclusions that you've arrived at. Okay. Uh, so my rationale was, I, I think, kind of an absolutely normal one. Last, I can still remember driving home from work, and I'd only just heard about the coronavirus, I guess it's not literally true, but I mean, I had heard about it in the end of January, but it really only got my attention sort of in early March. And, and like a week later, we were locking down and I remember thinking, this must be smallpox. Nobody, surely, I, I, I remember thinking, do people have any idea 
of the amount of economic activity that goes on in a single day. And, you know, what the cost of shutting, telling people to stay home for, for one day, let alone two weeks. I mean, it just boggles my mind. And so I immediately started just looking into it, like maybe others did or did not. And I just have carried that on throughout the entire year. So throughout the entire year and a half, I've been collecting studies, reading studies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, mostly just to keep my anger down and just to keep my sanity. But at some point I was involved in a law case in Canada that required me to do an actual study. And so I wrote that report and uh, some people were asking about it. And I thought, well, I will just write a version of this report for lay people. And I put it on Facebook on April 4th. It went viral on April 6th. And I have been doing this kind of thing ever since. It's just been great. <laughs> Well, it's good. And it's, it's the first of such analysis that I've come across. Um, are you aware if the government themselves have produced a similar document or, or any other public health agencies? So to my knowledge, and in the case I was involved, there was a person that was job was to look into whether or not any government uh, had done any cost benefit study and we could find none. Wow. And, and is that in Canada or? or... Uh, I think I, that was certainly for Canada, but I'm pretty sure they were looking at Western Europe and, and the United States as well. And wow. it makes sense to me because, uh, it, you know, it, it, again, it's not rocket science to figure out that this thing had costs that far exceeded any benefits. And uh, maybe we can talk later about there's a little report came out this week, just written by a couple of lawyers in Ontario with no statistical ability whatsoever. And they were just plotting excess mortality data for Canada in the last 10 years and eyeballing it and doing an eyeball test and saying, hey, we don't see any, yeah. we don't see any pandemic. Uh, you know, it's there, it's just so small that you can't see it with your eyeball. So if you knew that as a politician, are you going to actually do a formal cost benefit study to come up with the answer that you know already and that then you can be held accountable for later on when somebody says, hey, last in June of 2020, you did cost-benefit analysis lockdown and found that it was a tragedy, and you kept going. I mean, it's the last thing a politician is going to want to do. Well, hopefully that accountability comes to play at some point because, you know, I think some people's feet need to be held to the fire over this. I'm an optimist in that I think the truth always comes out. The question is, will it come out too late or not? Right, right. And so this term, the counterfactual, uh, can you define that for us? Because that's obviously a pretty important uh, uh, term within the, the, the body of this paper. Okay. The lawyer would use the phrase, but for. But for X happening, what would have happened? So it only means what would have taken place had we not done something. So in this case, we did a lockdown. What would have happened in terms of the number of deaths, the number of cases, had we not done so? That's all it means. Okay. Okay. So it's a, uh, a, a more fancy word for sort of a simpler, um, simpler concept. Yeah, it, it, it's just uh, you need to know if lockdown had any positive effect or not, or negative effect for that matter. And so you need to sort of ask the question, what would have happened? So that's why we have models and ways of trying to get at these things, because it's something that did not happen, but would have, but for the fact that you did a lockdown. 
Yes, yes. So in your paper, you cover the uh, Ferguson Imperial College model, which clearly seems to have began the alarmist movement uh, related to the pandemic in March of 2020. Uh, was this model, in your opinion, a gross exaggeration of reality? In some ways, it was a gross exaggeration. So you mentioned terms. So a really important term in all this literature is called a sur or a SIRS model, the S stands for how many people in the population are susceptible to the virus. The I stands for how many people are going to get infected. And the R stands for how many people are going to recover. And the other S, if it's in there is, you know, maybe they get reinfected or something. Um, so that's, this is the model that these Ferguson and all these other people were using. Almost every epidemiology model has some variation of this model in it. And in that model, for example, the how many people are susceptible to the disease? So one exaggeration that was in these early models by Ferguson and others was that 100% of the population was susceptible. Now we know that's a complete overestimate, right? That at least 40% of the population carries T cells from previous coronavirus infections that make them immune to the, the virus. So maybe at most, 60%, but some estimates are that maybe 90% of the population was already immune to the virus. And so if that's the case, uh, the counterfactual is gonna be much, much different. Um, the infection, there's a, a, a term called infection fatality rate. What that means is, is the number of people who get infected, how many die as a percent? Um, well, that number turns out to be on average about 0.15 of a percent. So of the people who get the virus, 99.85% of them are, are going to live. The original models assumed that, you know, this thing was like 2% of people are gonna die. Um, you know, it, just, it was off by a factor of 10, you know, or, or, or more. The other- and and sorry, let me just jump in there. The, if I, am I correct in, in Ferguson's assumption of the H1N1, uh, he also produced a grossly exaggerated model for that uh, potential situation, which really never amounted to anything. He has a long track record of missing the mark, whether it's H1N1, <laughs> cow, mad cow disease, et cetera, et cetera. The interesting thing to note, he's a physicist. He's not even an epidemiologist. It's kind of a failed physicist that sort of landed in this field. He's had this model for about 20 years that he didn't even let anybody look at until last April. He was sort of forced to have people look at it. And people found all kinds of mistakes, let alone the exaggerations. Um, but anyway, uh, there's one other really important um, a, uh, 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 parameter in these models. It's called the reproduction number, the R value. Uh, and the reproduction number is, if I get infected, how many people am I going to infect? If this number is greater than one, then the virus is going to sort of explode in our, in our population. If the number is less than one, it's going to decline. It's going to eventually go away. And when people talk about lockdown, they're always, that's, this is where the bending the curve comes in. They're talking about lowering R, lowering R, getting R below one, getting it below one. That bends the curve, bends the curve, bends the curve. Now, you have seen 
uh, pictures of these models on the news. Every time Dr. Bonnie Henry has a modeling day, there's these graphs of these numbers exploding off into infinity until, of course, everybody becomes infected and immune and then it collapses. The reason why those things look like that is because of all these values. And so these values turn out to be way off. And, um, uh, and, and so that's where the exaggerations come from. And if you want, I can talk a little bit about more R. There's something really interesting about that number, but I just want to add this one point though. The model Please. is, it's not just that the models had these exaggerated features. That's actually, that's important, but there's something actually far, something far more important. And that's that the numbers misrepresented reality. And it's really the model misrepresented reality. And the reason why the model misrepresents the reality is because in the real world, the real world is populated by human beings and human beings are not rocks and human beings just don't go about their business ignoring the world that they live in. And so if you knew that there was a virus around that, whether it's lethal or not lethal, you just don't want to get it. Um, you change your behavior. Maybe you don't go to the stores often. Maybe you order your food in. Maybe when you go to the store, you don't hug every person you see or, or get too close to them, whatever. Uh, you change your behavior. And it's hard to believe, but these all of these early models, and in fact, all the models that are still modeling the Delta variant, they assume that people behave like rocks and that they never change their behavior. And when you don't change your behavior, yeah, the, the virus will track a purely biological trajectory. But guess what? When you do change your behavior, suddenly, I heard one guy on the radio the other day, he was a biologist, and he said, what we've learned from the, from the coronavirus is that behavior trumps biology. Mm. Now, an economist could have told you that last March. We didn't have to go very far, right? I mean, that's always the case. Behavior always trumps uh, the constraints that we're, we're living under because we respond and optimize subject to all of these things. So when people see a virus or whatever danger, they respond. And in responding, all of these very, these parameters change in, in terms of their values. And now, I, I, I don't know if you uh, have pulled up our world in data at all. I don't know if you did that. No, I, I haven't. I haven't. Okay. I'm going to give you an exercise and you can email me later about it. But when you go to Smart <laughs> sure. World and Data, uh, like I said, pull up any country you want and click on the reproduction number R. So this data, this data set has calculated the R value for every country at every day in the past year and a half. And something very, very fascinating will slap you in the face when you look at that, that, that graph. And it's this. Now, remember. R bigger than one, we've got exponential growth. R less than one, the virus goes away. R has basically equaled one since the end of last April. Hasn't changed. It goes up and down, up and down a little bit, but it's hovering around one ever since. Why is that? Well, there's about the best example of what we, I would call an economic equilibrium that I've ever seen in my entire life. Because you can think of the reproduction numbers like a price. When the reproduction number is high, it's like I go to the grocery store, it's as if all prices have doubled. 
And so I, I don't go there very often. <laughs> when the reproduction number is low, it's like, oh, prices, you know, they're free. And so I go there more often. And so the reason why it's hovering around one is that's people responding. The equilibrium level of the, of the virus, like all viruses, is the endemic state. All viruses, you know, H1N1, that's the Spanish flu. That was over 100 years ago. It's still here, right? It's just that most of us are immune to it, but it's still hovering around one. Every person who gets it infects one other person. And uh, that's what's going to happen with the, it's already happened with the, the, the coronavirus. It's been that way all year long. So uh, that is just a remarkable uh, thing about, about, uh, about uh, the, the R value. And it just shows you how wrong the epidemiologists are by modeling only a virus and not accounting for human behavior. Hmm. It's very interesting. And, and could that be include that, that human behavioral element? Could that be included into the equations to, I guess, fine tune these models for, for future use? It's actually not even that hard. So uh, in the paper, I, 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 I comment on these two papers by a guy named Atkinson in uh, Aiken, Aikinson, Aikinson, I can never pronounce his name. Uh, he's at UCLA. He was the first person who discovered this fact that the R value approaches one. Now he found it in the, he, he calculated all this data himself. And he did this last spring and sort of published it last August. When I saw that, I, I was just floored. I just thought, oh my goodness, this, this, surely we won't have a lockdown this winter. I mean, look what we discovered. And he found this across every single country every single state, every single country that where the virus got into. And uh, now again, you can just go to our world of data and see it for yourself. But, but he found that first, but in the, in the winter, what he did, he said, okay, I'm going to take this Ferguson model, which when the Ferguson model makes these predictions, it's off by factors of 10, 12, 15, right? I mean, it's just, it's so far off that you need, it's, it's just kind of absurd. And he said, I'm just going to add one equation. And the equation is only going to be this, that when the R value goes up, I, I don't have as many interactions. You know, I slow down. It, it just, it's not even a sophisticated equation. It's just really simple. And yet, just adding that one equation, he can come really, really close to making uh, uh, predictions about what the actual cases are, what the actual deaths are, etc. Interesting. And of course, then... The depressing part about that is the virus is here these waves keep going on until 2023. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and of course, you know, one of the other factors that isn't included into the models, and, and in Canada, we have no approved prophylactic treatments. Um, and again, you know, the work of Peter McCullough and his associates with ivermectin and uh, the multi uh, I, uh, HCQ and the other multi-drug approach that they've been using, uh, that also has to have an effect on terms of where the, the spread of the virus goes, or at least the pathogenicity of the virus in terms of its effects. So this is a little outside uh, my area of knowledge, but I think when, again, looking at, when you look at all countries, we're using all different techniques, all different things. At the end of the day, the, the cumulative effect on deaths, forget cases, but the cumulative effect on deaths is so stinking similar across, across countries, especially in a given region. So when you look at Europe, I mean, all these countries had different ways of treating the disease, all these sorts of things, and yet they all ended up, not always at the same spot in any given month of last year, but they sort of all ended up on the same cumulative deaths per million. 
right? The cumulative death rates per million. They're not exactly the same, but they're pretty darn close, which tells me that the virus is going to do what it, all the other viruses do. It's going gonna, it's gonna to infect a certain amount of the population. It's going to kill a certain amount. And there's really not much you can do at the end of the day. You can delay it a little bit. Uh, you know, there might be some people at the margin that you can treat. But again, it has a natural mortality. It's killing people that were going to die anyway. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, that's just my impression, my limited knowledge impression of what's going on on that dimension. Sure. Okay. And then if we if we get into some of the sort of the actual cost uh, associated, the cost benefit analysis, um, there's a value of statistical life. Um, and there's obviously complexity to that term because that value of somebody who's 20 years old versus somebody who's 80 years old is different. Yeah. So this is still on the benefit side. So you're saying... So the way these studies worked is they said, okay, lockdown is going to save lives. That's a number of lives. But what are those lives worth? And that sounds like an odd question for the average person to think about. But this is a question you have to ask in every policy decision. You're going to build a dam, and that dam is going to displace people, and it might kill people. And you have to say, well, what's, what's the value of their life compared to the value of the dam? Or you're going to put on a safety device on a car, and you say, well, that's costly. How many lives is it going to save and what's the value of those lives and compare them? you know it's just a way of comparison comparison comparing things so you have to measure the value of a life okay fine the value of the statistical life is kind of an odd thing it it, it sort of says i'm going to look at you michael and i'm going to look at the trade-offs that you make in your life and i'm going to see if somebody offered you a dangerous job and they they would have to offer you a higher wage to take that dangerous job and i'll and i'll see if you take it or not and i'll use that wage premium and the probability that you're going to get killed on this job as a as, as a measure of what you think your life is worth and so if you're uh, willing to take ten thousand dollars for a one in ten thousand chance of killing yourself you're sort of telling me that you're worth ten million dollars that, that's the one I now it's got all kinds of problems and I don't really want to get into them because that's, it's not the main issue, but that's sort of the gist of the idea. And so people have been estimating these things since the 1960s. And uh, whether you like this as the use or not, uh, there's a couple things that we know about it. So given that we're using this thing, what do we know? The most important thing we know is that the value of your life depends on how old you are. That, the value of your life is sort of at its highest when you're about 13 years old. You've got a lot of life ahead of you, and uh, you've got almost all entirely earning power, etc. And and you're fully conscious and aware of the world. And generally speaking, for the average the average 13 year old American is worth about 14 million dollars. That's sort of the number that people estimate. And then, so that's when it's about its highest. Maybe it climbs a little bit till you're 18. And then it just slowly falls for the rest of your life. Part of the reason why it falls is because you don't have much life left. And so by the time you get to 80, it's the average value of an 80-year-old is like $2 million. <laughs> but that number $2 million is based on the expectation that you have the average life expectancy of an 80-year-old, which if you make it to 80... You're expected to live another nine or ten years. So that's kind of an important thing. 
So the average 80-year-old who's going to live another 10 years is worth, say, $2 million. Well, let's take that as given. It's hard to believe, but almost every one of these cost-benefit studies last year assumed that the average, that every, first off, it assumed that every single person, regardless of age, had the same value of their life. That's ridiculous. That's like me asking you today. You could live one more day or you could live another 40 years and you telling me, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> the value of my life is, it's the same whether I'm going to live one more day or whether I'm going to live. I mean, it's absurd. But that was a ridiculous assumption that was made. And then the second ridiculous part is it assumed that everybody's life was worth $10 million, including, remember, in Canada, the average age of a COVID death was 83. It's saying that the average 83-year-old died in Canada, their life was worth $10 million, which nobody in their right mind would have said. So not only are they 83, not 80, but they were sick. They had, on average, four comorbidities, which meant they were probably going to die in the next six months to a year. They weren't going to live another 10 years. Their life wasn't even worth $2 million, something far less. Mm. Now, you can even go further. There's another measure of the value of life that nobody even thinks of using, but it's called the, it was used in some British study. It's called a quality of life adjusted value. And that's saying, okay, you know, just because you're living, that doesn't mean life is actually worth living. You know, if you were stuck in a wheelchair, being fed through a straw and couldn't move any of your limbs, and you're 87 years old and all your friends have died and your kids don't come to visit you, you might easily think that you live too long and that the value of your life is zero and yet you wish to die. I just had, I was at a birthday party this weekend for this woman, she was 87 and she talked the whole time that, you know, she wanted to die this year. That was her birthday wish. Oh, she said, God. long enough, I think it's time for me to die. She was completely serious. She wasn't upset or anything like that. She just, you know, to her, she's done it That's all. They've done that. And, I, I think that's fairly common, you know, this idea that, you know, you can live too long. But but the point is, is that if you use quality adjusted lives, you're going to get even a lower number than two million. Right. So. By, on the one hand, they overestimated the number of people that, that were saved and of those people that they saved, they gave them a ridiculously high value of life. So they were coming up with the value the benefits of COVID lockdown were in the trillions of dollars. Well, it didn't matter what the costs were going to be. I mean, if you're saving trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars. And so, you know, I mean, what's the point of doing a cost-benefit study? It's kind of obvious, isn't it, that you should just lock down everything. And that, that was something that really disturbed me or I questioned right from the get-go was that sort of lack of triage, which we've always had. And of course, the you know the Great Barrington Declaration goes into that in terms of you know those who need to shelter or take precautions should, and the rest of us that don't should carry on our business um, and you know support the economy and keep the whole engine of uh, the world rolling. And to me, it seems like this has never happened in history where we've had a one size fits all solution uh, to a problem like this. Yeah, you know, it's funny you should mention that. So. Uh... There's an economic idea behind triage. And the idea is, is you want to equate the marginal productivity of your action across all the different actions. And I always use triage as an example of that, that, okay, you've got a limited health budget. You can't help everybody. Who do you help? Well, you help where your impact is the greatest. And this was another one of my reactions last March when that South Korea um, mortality data came out and it showed that, oh, 
the only, you know, this is not killing children. It's not killing everybody. It's killing a small sliver of the population. Well, obviously, we want to protect that small sliver of the population. And it became clearer than six weeks that, that the virus is being transmitted among nursing homes by people that were working part-time in multiple nursing homes. I was like, oh, my gosh. If we took the tiniest sliver of the costs that we're imposing on society through lockdown, we could quadruple the salaries of every nursing home worker and allow them to, we could, we could pay them, you could give them, you know, half a million dollars a year, full-time employment, we'll hire <laughs> three times as many. And it still would have been a trivial uh, consequence to our budget. And we would have kind of eliminated 90% of the problem. So yes. I was shocked. To me, it was just so obvious that this was the way it should go about. Because again, it, it's sort of what we sort of teach in basic 101 economics is that, uh, you know, you've got a dollar, where are you going to spend it? You're going to spend it where it has the biggest impact. Yes. Uh, you're not going to yes. say, oh, I'm going to, spend, I'm going to divide it into fractions of a penny and then spend it on everything. Sure. And of course, the other portion of that equation is that those poor seniors that were in those care homes that became isolated, you know, their their quality of life as, you know, if we're looking at a quality of life adjusted value, became less and less as that isolation became more and more and they became just despondent. And, you know, they're, they, they let's say, you know, you're, you're stuck in bed and your mobility is reduced and you're, you're the only thing you look forward to in your life is your visit from your children or grandchildren on the weekend and that's taken away from you. And then what is the quality of your life i mean you're you're it's i mean it's a horrible existence i again this gets you know you're talking about the cost side again and there are so many tragedies this whole episode there are so many people that are marginalized have no voice etc including children seniors in, in in homes and university students that just got trampled and it's hard to imagine how you could torture a person more then leave them alone in their own dirty diaper uh, with, you know, very little contact with other human beings month after month after month, block them away from their family, etc. Uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable, uh, the things that we did. This last year, I had to talk back one person for sure, one student for sure, I had to talk him back from the edge of suicide. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, he was just, and I don't even know what happened to him because he just went off the the charts. He dropped my course and, uh, but three others, uh, I spent hours and hours with them bawling and bawling on Zoom uh, because they had become so terrified. They were living in their parents' basement and their parents were terrified and they didn't even have contact with their parents. They thought they would kill their parents if they interacted. Their parents thought they would kill them. And, you know, they literally had kind of like a cabin fever. And again, nobody's going to know about that. Nobody's going to think about that. And who knows what the long-run consequences are for those those kids. But, you know, again, it's just one of these things that were, were you know, it's, it's just an unbelievable thing that we did. And well, and those, those are the human stories that I think are so valuable to tell and will be the real blemish and the leadership that those type of stories were ignored and that they, the 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 measures that they put in place created those problems i mean and and that's you know so what are we talking about 20 something year olds that are going through that 
19, 20, 21 somethings. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So I mean, very young people that, you know, when you're contemplating taking your own life at such a young age, when the rest of your life is in front of you, I mean, that, that's, that's truly tragic. And, you know, again, it's the, the, the perpetrators of this need to have their feet held to the fire at some point, because that's simply not, not, it's not acceptable to me. And I hope it's not acceptable to anyone. Yeah. And of course, we're going to get into this, but I mean, you know, Presumably the counter argument was, is that while well, these costs were necessary because of these trillions of benefits, but of course, the truth of the matter is, it looks like there were really no benefits. Right, right. And so the, the I guess then the other thing to look at in terms of these behavioral changes, can we distinguish between voluntary and mandated lockdown effects? Are, are, are those similar to the behavioral okay. changes? So yeah, the, the, this gets at the very heart of the behavioral change. So. Uh, so we just we already pointed out the fact that a fundamental misrepresentation of these early models is that they did not include the individual response, the fact that human beings respond to things. We have a fancy word for that. We call it endogenous response, that your model has to include in it the fact that people change their behavior based on the things that are going on around them, as opposed to what the models did was assume that people's behavior was exogenous. It was just constant, never changing. And so that's on the model side. When you model it to, to figure out what the counterfactual is, what would have happened, but for the lockdown, uh, you need to model that. But when you actually go out and estimate, now you, now you say, okay, we had this model. We thought there was going to be, uh, you know, in Canada, the model said there's going to be 260,000 people died. Um, we did this lockdown. We had 23,000 people died. Um, so now we'll go out and estimate and see that, you know, was it the actually the lockdown that caused that gap or was it something else? And so here you, you have to do another type of modeling. It's called an empirical kind of modeling. And when you when you do an empirical kind of model, if, if you tell the computer, hey, here's a bunch of data, go analyze the data, and there's only one variable that you're allowed to explain that gap, and we're gonna call that one variable lockdown You've kind of tied the computers to all its arms behind its back, and it noticed that you know maybe there was a fall in cases or whatever like that, and it will assign 100% uh, to that lockdown. And that's what happened in these very early empirical studies that came out last May and June that, again, made absolutely ridiculous claims. And uh, they did all kinds of empirical tricks that maybe we don't need to go into, but um, you know, one of them was is that they you know, things change over time. And so when you ha tell the computer, I, I want you to look for things that are that are explaining the data. And really there's hundreds of things that are explaining the data and they're changing over time, but you force the, the, the computer to collapse everything at one point in time, namely the day that the legislation was signed for the lockdown. Uh, you're sort of forcing the computer just to lump everything in there and you just necessarily create what we call a biased estimate, but it's likely gonna be huge. So anyway, it took a few months for you know people to figure out what was going on here and to do it. So it's again, it's really easy to tell the computer here, here's a here's a bunch of things that could explain what's going on. And now the computer can sort them out. We have ways of sorting these issues out. And we design the empirical experiments in certain ways. We look at places that didn't lock down and places that did, and we look at places before they locked down and after they locked down, and we look at the intensity of the lockdown and if they did a mask or stay at home order. You know, just dozens and dozens of ways we can get at the effect of lockdown. And at the end of the day, it looks like at best, 
lockdowns might have had a tiny effect, but only when it was first implemented and only when they were minor lockdowns. And what's probably going on there is that it, a lockdown is really telling people, hey, there's a virus out there. That's really what's going on. And so because it's a minor lockdown, it's really not causing people to officially change their behavior much. People are changing their behavior anyway. And uh, so that's probably the lockdown effect. Anything after that has, has no effect. And the reason why lockdowns had no effect, but there's a, on the one hand, the people who are vulnerable have already locked themselves down. They have voluntarily changed their behavior and they're not going to uh, do anything. In jurisdictions that do lockdown, there are people that are not vulnerable and they're not complying with the lockdown. Yeah, like you. There you go. Uh, you know, like my, my, you know, I won't say who they are, but people in my life, uh, um, you know, and so you're in lockdown, but you're behaving as if it's not lockdown. And there are people that are not lockdown that are behaving as if there is lockdown. And so the effect of lockdown is there is no effect. That's what's going on. Now they say, well, I guess it doesn't matter if we lock down or not. And that's not true. Because as you mentioned earlier, lockdown is a blunt instrument is like cracking a walnut with a sledgehammer it crushes everything in its wake whereas if i'm a vulnerable person and i voluntarily lock down that's the right thing to do and if you're not a vulnerable person and you don't lock down and you just carry on your life that's the right thing to do so there's no change in effect but there's sure a big change in the costs sure sure right so is that then also, can we apply that to the differential between, let's say, Sweden and the EU or Sweden and the UK, where we had radically different approaches to the application of the lockdown or the severity of the lockdowns? Uh, yes. And so, uh, you know, Sweden had was a case of sort of uh, minimal lockdowns. This country that had even fewer lockdowns was Finland. Everyone okay. says, oh, what are you worried about Sweden for? Look at its look at its neighbors. They don't realize that their neighbors actually had fewer lockdowns than Sweden, Sweden did. <laughs> um, but yeah, so here I am. I'm on Our World in Data, and I'm just looking at the cumulative deaths across the European Union and the cumulative deaths for Sweden. This is as of August 16th today. And in the European Union, it's 1,680 per million people. So, so basically close to 1,700 people per million died. And in Sweden, it was 1450. So it's it's lower. So on average, Sweden had fewer lockdowns than the rest of the European Union, and they had much fewer deaths uh, in, in total. Um, why was that? Well, part of that is that because, uh, you know, the, 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 the lockdown had no impact. Right? And but the other thing is, is that the virus went through Sweden, just like it went through the rest of Europe. And when I look at the, the function there on my graph, there, it look, the virus kind of looks similar in both cases. And even though the deaths are different, they're not really that different, right? I mean, uh, the virus did its thing in Sweden and the virus did its thing in Europe, regardless of the fact of lockdown. And the amazing thing is, when I, so I've got GoFundMe here, I've got the United States, United Kingdom, European Union, Sweden. Uh, the virus did the same thing in all those places. It took off last spring, leveled out in the summer, then took off in the winter and it's leveled off again. And now it's sort of climbing again because of the new variant. But uh, the virus does its thing.
And so could we equate some of that differential between the lockdown and, and or the, you know, more severe lockdown or no lockdown to, you know, mental health or sort of just the physical, physical well-being of those people where they're given more freedom and liberty to conduct their lives according to their own prerogative versus being forced to do something? And there's a difference in physiological response there. So... Right now, I'm looking at the deaths attributed to COVID. Now, whether they're actually COVID or not, I don't know. You're asking me a question about all death mortality. You know, so that's that's a really important issue because at the end of the day, when all the various scientists start to analyze what happened here, they will mostly be using what we call excess mortality data because then I don't have to worry about what the doctor wrote down on the death certificate. Because again, these people that die of COVID, they have, you know, they have lung disease, heart disease, they're diabetic, they're overweight, et cetera. So what killed them? You know, you know, the doctor writes down something, but that's not necessarily what they died of. So at the end of the day, you want to look at the excess mortality and you want to look at, you know, of the age group, because we know COVID kills a certain age group. So um, if I were to pull up Canada's excess mortality, uh, we only had excess deaths really last spring. So even though we went through these other waves of COVID, uh, there were some excess deaths, but most of them were people under 60, which means that was probably attributed to missing their cancer appointment or, you know, their surgery that was necessary or something like that. But the, the excess deaths were not like, were not due to COVID. So this is something that we still need to come to grips with. It's going to take, yes. you know, excess data death is, is hard to, it, it, it takes a while to uh, assemble. And so uh, we don't have Canada's terribly slow at it. Um, so it's going to take time to sort through all that stuff. Yeah, and certainly, you know, as you mentioned, m either missed cancer treatment or diagnosis. I mean, those, uh, the ramifications of that will be forthcoming over the next 6, 12, 18 months, uh, probably to a much greater degree. You broke, up there. you broke up there, Michael. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I think what you're what you're referring to there in terms of the you know missed cancer treatments or diagnoses uh, or or other surgeries, I mean the ramifications of that will be forthcoming in the you know six, twelve, eighteen months uh, into the future as those problems manifest and you know potentially cause more problems. It's true there will be more future problems, but what I'm saying is it looks like there were already problems last year. Yes. Yes. During the summer, we had excess deaths, but we had excess deaths of people under 60. Yeah. And so yeah. those people were not dying of COVID. So what were they dying from? They must have been dying from something like a missed surgery or a cancer appointment that didn't get you know, even diagnosed. Sure, sure. So have you calculated the, the dollar value loss of the Canadian GDP uh, due to the lockdown? I have. And um, just before I get into that, I just want to make one other point. Sure. GDP. So, because this is actually very important for understanding these misleading studies. So, on the one hand, they said the benefits of lockdown are the lives saved, and not just the lives saved, but the value of those lives. And the reason why an 80 year old they claimed was worth $10 million was not because he was producing $10 million worth of stuff, it was because that's the utility, the value of the utility he gets from living. So, fair enough. Okay, you picked the wrong number, but fair enough, you picked the, the uh, value of life based on utility. Then when it comes to the cost of COVID, they say, oh, well, what's the cost of lockdown? It's just the lost GDP. 
In other words, the lost value of the goods and services of people not working. And you then are now comparing apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. Because as we've been talking about, there's a heck of a lot more cost in lockdown than GDP, right? I mean, you know, literally, we talked about a dozen things already that are yes. not in terms of GDP. When your poor grandmother is locked down in her nursing home and suffering, well, that's not measured in GDP. And so if you want to put it into perspective, you say, okay, you want to measure the cost of lockdown in terms of GDP? Let's measure the value of of life saved in terms of lost GDP or gained GDP. Of those of those people that didn't die, how much GDP did they produce? Well, they were 83 years old. They weren't producing anything. And so on GDP measures, you say, my goodness, lockdown is a disaster. So my estimate for Canada, and I, I think it's an underestimate because I'm attributing a lot of the loss of GDP to the virus and not lockdown. Um, so my estimate is 90 billion. It's somewhere between 90 billion and 150 billion, but I'll take the low number. Um, 90 billion, you say there was a $90 billion loss in GDP, but there was no gain in GDP from lockdown. So it, it looks like a disaster just on that front. But yeah, Canada, I'm estimating 90 billion, but again, that's just a minor component of the total cost. Sure, sure. And then I was, I'd imagine that there's probably uh, differential losses across various industry segments as opposed to just sort of a uniform decrease in that uh, GDP number. Right. So again, we've sort of hinted at this before that one of the tragic things about COVID is that the very people making decisions uh, were often bearing zero costs of those decisions, which is a disaster. That's a, that's a way to get the wrong decision almost guaranteed. And the people that were not, you know, there are so many people that bore so many of these costs that were hidden and, uh, you know, it was very disproportionate. So the young were hit hard. Uh, people in the service industry were hit hard. Different industries were hurt harder than others. I mean, the travel industry uh, was hit extremely hard. Other industries never felt a thing. Uh, you know, and academics is probably one of them. I mean, in many ways, my life got just a lot easier this last year. I, I recorded a bunch of lectures and put them up. I didn't have to show up to class. Uh, I had a, I, I went to work every day, but most people didn't. But that meant I had a private university at my disposal with a private mm -hmm. gym. Uh, you know, we have a lot of employees at a library at, at SFU. Our library has been closed for 18 months. Oh, wow. Those people have all been paid. But nobody lost their job. But it, it's literally been the great vacation. So, uh, wow. I mean, you know, so some people have had a, a wonderful time and other people have suffered tragically. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you know people in your own life that, uh, you know, we had some really good friends that uh, they're a little younger than me, but they owned one of our favorite restaurants. And they struggled for about five or six months, lost the restaurant, lost their home, which was financed to finance the restaurant. I have two, two little kids, uh, you know, I mean, they'll never be written about or talked about. Yeah, and it is. I mean, I know several people that did really well from some of the government programs to sort of keep their businesses afloat. And uh, some people that, uh, you know, it was just was a complete abject failure, lost a number of businesses. So it, it definitely uh, struck different people differently. I have another friend who owns a couple of restaurants. And initially he was hit really hard, but he's very clever. And he, he figured out a way to change the way people ordered food. And uh, he changed the way they produced their food. It's kind of a real special restaurant. And he's ended up dropping his, uh, he used to employ about, I think, over a hundred people 
it was sort of a catering restaurant thing on the side. There was five restaurants. Well, he's ended up cutting that, that his labor cost by a third. And he's now not going back. He substituted a lot of technology for the labor. Now, that's bad for the labor. But, you know, there's another, maybe that's a long-run consequence. But, uh, you know, again, he sort of benefited. <laughs> COVID was a shock to him that spurred him to innovate a bunch of things that, uh, but yeah, the, the benefits and costs are not evenly distributed. That is for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then you know we we did touch upon these non-economic losses. Uh, we we touched upon lost educational opportunities at the beginning of the show, um, some of the additional effects of school closures and so forth. Um, and the the one that we didn't touch upon uh, would be the the increased deaths or or loss of quality of life due to you know uh, despair, whether that's you know uh, substance abuse or overdose. Um, and uh, one of my prior guests, Alan McRae, had uh, tabulated the, the loss of life in Alberta uh, at about 32,500 person years uh, of the number of p old people that were saved versus the young people under 35 that had wound up with a, an opiate uh, overdose. And so that's something that we don't really hear much about in, in the news. No. Um, and here's another thing that I think is going to require some kind of investigation. So. Canada is one of the few countries that went through sort of this lockdown thing that in terms of number of suicides, uh, there's no real increase in suicides this year, but there's sure been a huge increase in drug overdoses. Right. Now, it strikes me that one of the way you commit suicide is you, you have an overdose of drugs. And again, I'm just wondering if there's been any pressure or whatever. Oh, and you have to write down the cause of death. If there's some pressure to write down overdose opioid overdose and so this is now part of the opioid crisis as opposed to this was a suicide that's a result of lockdown sure and certainly i mean i think the the numbers both in bc and alberta the the numbers have doubled or gone or gone up close to three times in terms of the opiate uh, overdoses that's yeah. right that's yeah. right and yeah there's so there's a fellow at the university of chicago casey mulligan very very good economist he's been doing quite a bit of work on this deaths of despair and uh, yeah, shows across the U.S. that there's been a huge increase in deaths of yeah. despair. And again, these deaths tend to be also in concentrated among the young. Uh, another one is uh, dementia. You know, the number of dementia deaths have, has skyrocketed uh, this past year. I again, haven't heard which that. Be, which can be caused by being isolated. You know, isolation and the loss of routine uh, can accelerate uh, you know, the effects of dementia. You know, if you're not you know, if your routine is gone, you used to do something on Mondays, and now that's gone. You used to do something different on Tuesdays. That's gone. Now every day is like every other day, and uh, you lose track of time, and you lose track, you know, you, you, your mental capacity slips rather quickly. And uh, so just another example of a, of a death of despair. But yes. it's just another area where, again, in Canada, virtually no official research done, but yeah, that, that will probably find, uh, yeah, a mm. number of long-term deaths. And then, of course, we also have the increase in domestic violence, which is probably also related to despair, uh, potentially. And, you know, now we have, um, you know, either partner, male or female, that may be trapped uh, with a lockdown situation with an abusive partner. And, and of course, that has deleterious consequences for mental health uh, going well into the future, if not your physical health. Yeah. So even in my own personal contact, I have a family member who had a family member uh so not as an in-law so it's not a direct family member of mine but after seven weeks of lockdown last year 
they've been locked up. You remember what it was like in March and April. I mean, a lot of people really took lockdown seriously, more seriously than they did in this past winter. They had been literally cabin bound for seven weeks and they were drinking a little too much on one night and uh, got into an argument and the husband strangled his wife of 35 years. Wow. Killed, killed her. Wow. And, uh, and when asked later, you know, what happened? He said, well, I, I just couldn't, I didn't, I always had walked away and that wasn't an option and he lost it. But, you know, I, how many times has that played out in the country? I don't know, but. Sure. Now that again, will never get counted as a COVID death. <laughs> or never count as a lockdown death. Uh, but, you know, those things happened. Yes, yes. And then uh, Professor Brian Kaplan has an interesting thought experiment, and, and perhaps so we can apply it to the Canadian situation, um, which kind of gives us uh, this cost-benefit ratio that we talked about at the opening of the show there. So so what are we going to do here? You, you, we've been talking about all these different costs, and, and, we, and we know that, I mean, every day it's like a new cost or a new thing arises that we didn't even think about before. I mean, you, you mentioned a couple that, that I hadn't thought about. Um, and we know that the, the research is not done. And we know that at the end of the day, we're going to have to add these things all up. And there, and there are all kinds of people that you would not even think about asking, you know, what the costs are, but they obviously impose costs. So what can we do? And yeah, Brian Kaplan is a smart uh, economist at George Mason. And I, I attribute it to him, but it's really just a kind of a, a game economist play all the time when evaluating things. And it's it's the following. It says, let me give you two scenarios. One, you could have lived in, say, the United Kingdom, a country that had the virus and it had severe lockdowns. That's what you could have lived through. Or you could have lived through, say, Sweden or maybe Florida. They had the virus too, but they had minimal lockdowns. And let's suppose we call that zero lockdowns. So you lived a year through United Kingdom, and the, the choice is this. Um, I want to know how many months you would have given up of the year to live in Sweden or to live in Florida. So in other words, so I think you're a little bit like me. Uh, I think I would have easily, easily given up four months of 2020 uh, to have not lived through lockdowns. I, I found them oppressive. I found them anxiety-creating, anger, infuriating, uh, really kind of the worst year of my life in a lot of ways uh, caused by that thing. So if you told me, oh, 2020 is going to be only eight months for you, that's it. The other ones don't even exist. But you get to live in a place like Florida where there's no lockdowns. I would have said, thumbs up, I'll take it. Okay? Well, what, you're tell what I'm telling you then is that the cost of lockdowns to me is four months of my life. Now... Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're like uh, my cousin. <laughs> she loves lockdown. She, <laughs> she loves taking home. She loves knowing that she's doing something for her country. She's deathly afraid of dying. Uh, she thinks that, you know, even today, at this day, if she, you know, would not come 20 feet from me because she, she might die. Um, so for her, if you said, how much would you? She would say zero. I would rather live in the United Kingdom. So I'm not willing to pay any. Lockdown costs me nothing. Okay. So now you t I, you asked me, I said four months. You asked her, you said zero months. I asked you, you say the whole year, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, so everybody has a number. And so Brian's question is, what's the average number? And so he did a little poll 
I'm, I'm currently conducting a random sample study to try to get at the number, but we'll take his number, which I think is an underestimate. He thinks it's an underestimate, but it's two months that the okay. average Canadian or American would have sacrificed two months for the for the to have lived in a in a country that didn't lock down. Uh, okay, well, there's 37, almost 38 million people in Canada. If I multiply those two months times 38 million, I get something like 6.4 million life years. That was the cost of lockdown. We sacrificed 6.4 million life years. If I convert that, I say, well, let's suppose 80 year olds, they can live in Canada. You make it to 80. There you got a life expectancy of almost 10 more years. So I'll convert those 6.4 million life years divide by the 10 years. That's the equivalent of killing. 640,000 80-year-olds. Just, I mean, to stop and think about that is staggering. When last March, when we decided to lock down, the government had said, we're going to lock down. That means that 640,000 80-year-olds are going to die. But think of the benefits. Uh, maybe 2,000 of you are going to be saved. I mean, because you know, the act of the mark, uh, so we had about 20, 25,000 people die as of, you know, March or something. So maybe 10% of them. If I remember, we said that the effect of lockdown is marginal. So let's overestimate it and say that we saved 10%. Well, that's only 2,500 lives. We killed 640,000 lives to save 2,500 lives. That's why I say it's probably the worst deal in human history. Yeah. Now, it doesn't, and it's not even called, you say, oh, you just pick, you know, even though I think I picked really conservative numbers. You want to go really conservative? Suppose that lockdowns only saved 1%. Well, there's your 3,000 times. That's your cost-benefit ratio now is 3,000. Or if you want to go the other way, suppose we take the most ridiculous College of London estimates and say that we would have had 260,000 people die. Well, we killed 640 to save 260. So what did we do? We, we The cost-benefit ratio is more than two. It's still... The costs were twice as high. So even yeah. after the most ridiculous, absurd scenario you can think of, uh, the costs were still in the in the ballpark of the fast ferries fiasco. Unbelievable. And, and when you look at it in that fashion, it really puts it into perspective as as to what's happened here. Exactly. I mean, it, it's 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 not even close. Interesting. So what is our, in your opinion, then what is our collective pathway forward to, to put this uh, miserable chapter of human history behind us? Again, I, 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 I am optimistic. I do think the truth comes out. And I, I think the only way out is for the truth to get out there. And that little report that those lawyers wrote, even though it was so unsophisticated, it gives me so much hope because if just sort of, they really were just ordinary people. They're not social scientists. They're not data guys. They're not, they don't know sophisticated con metrics and causality tests and, you know, all these sorts of things. They don't know that. They're just ordinary guys that went to the Stats Canada data site and plotted the data for the past 10 years and looked at it and said, yeah. This year looked just like you know, the other. I mean, they're little variants, but you know, if ordinary people can go to our world in data and just have a look and start, if we can somehow get that information out there, 
uh, then I think it, you know, I, that's, that's, I think the only possible way out then, because the only thing we can do is vote, right? We're not going to have a revolution. We're not going to go to arms. The only thing we can do is vote, but we have to be able to vote with the information, which means we have to get the information. Uh, I think it's, it's depressing how slow it is. This, I was asking this reporter from this major Canadian news outlet today who was interested in this, what I call the peanut story. I said, why aren't you, you know, asking <laughs> these other questions? I do not know why he's not interested, but somehow we have to get the information. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my uh, objective with this program is to to provide people, Canadian citizens, citizens of the world with this type of information from experts like yourself so they can inform themselves, come up with their own decisions. And, uh, you know, as, as you make mention, I mean, Canadians are um, at the precipice of a federal election here, and I hope that Canadians uh, see the political establishment and the the perpetrators of this uh, these poor decisions and give them a collective kick in the ass and uh, we'll try something something fresh and whether that 's better or not it, it can 't be any worse than the the present uh, uh, group of clowns that are running the show presently yeah yeah i don 't know I mean you said the right thing though people have to make up their own mind which is not to listen to an expert to me, like me, but to actually go look at our world in data or StatsCan. You can find the information. It literally takes just two or three minutes and you'd be shocked. Just Google COVID, lockdown, deaths, cost-benefit study, whatever. You Google any of those things and things will pop up. And there are other people like me that have put them in words and ways that you know ordinary people can understand. You don't need to be a statistician or epidemiologist to understand. And uh, it, it's out there, but people have to have the interest to do so. Yeah, and, and, and that's again, you know, if people are sitting in front of the television and, and uh, uh, absorbing the pablum ad nauseum. I mean, that's uh, they have to take that next step of doing some critical thinking and, you know, do their own fact checking of the information that's being presented to them. Is this a giant calamity on humanity? Are the, you know, there, there's no bodies in the streets. There hasn't been, you know, stacks of bodies anywhere on the planet. So, you know, people need to act accordingly. And, and as you say, you know, your your cousin is is pleased uh, to stay at home and lock herself up. Well, if that's someone's prerogative, then do so. But uh, folks like you and I should be allowed to carry on with our lives as we see fit as well. Yeah, I think this is even more important now with uh, vaccines. The vaccines in Canada are available to anyone who wants them. And uh, the vaccine is essentially looks like a real private good, right? So if I take the vaccine, it looks like they're effective and I can sort of have confidence that it was a term called the breakthrough infection rate. And the breakthrough infection rate is that if you're double vaccinated, what fraction of people have been reinfected or been infected for the first time? And according to the CDC, it's about 0 0.08 of a percent. It, it, it's so small, it's just not worth worrying about. So I shouldn't worry about whether or not you're vaccinated. If I'm vaccinated, I don't care if you're vaccinated or not. And even if you're not vaccinated, you're infected and you infect me, it looks like the, the, the breakthrough infection fatality rate, the number of people that are vaccinated and die is just so close to zero, it's not worth worrying about. So I can worry about whether you're vaccinated or not, which again, why we're worried about this is really troubling to me. You know, the idea of vaccine passports, the, vac the idea of forcing people you know, whatever happened to, you know, my body, my choice, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, I, 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 and, you know, the idea that we're going to restrict people for travel if they're not vaccinated, it sounds like apartheid to me. I think we're walking down a real bad road. 
It's not that the state does not have the right to restrict liberty. They do, but only under just cause and, and strong uh, uh, reason for doing so. And I, I, given that vaccines are available to anybody who wants them, I don't see that, that kind of just cause. If some people want to get immunity through infection, go ahead. Then sure. See what, what, what. And the same thing goes then for masks. And especially if the Delta variant really is as transmissible as they say, then masks were probably useless anyway, and now they're really useless. Well, and, so, and, and, and with, with the, the Delta variant, of course, the, the um, Mueller's ratchet says that a, a virus as it evolves becomes yeah, more transmissible. Yeah. But becomes less pathogenic. So yes, you know the. You know, I'm sure in years past, every fall you've got uh, a series of sniffling students in your classes, and and that's never going to change because the you know rhinoviruses and coronaviruses are part of humanity, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. No. Exactly. The, any virus that kills its host too quickly just doesn't hang around long enough to to last. So that's exactly right. It's true about AIDS. True about every other other virus that we've known for probably close to a hundred years or more. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, the interesting thing about Delta is sort of like, sort of like last spring, I thought, oh, look at the natural mortality. The, you know, the obvious response is, you know, this. With the Delta, the obvious response seems to be, wow, this is, it's like a gift from nature. It's it's going to run very quickly through very young people who decide not to, not to get vaccinated. Well, what does that mean? That means we'll reach a herd immunity very quickly. Very quickly, yeah. They'll die because they're all young people. Yeah. So, but instead we're like, oh no, we have to, separate we have to lock down which all that does is slow down the process so again when you look at the cumulative numbers over 18 months we all ended up in the same place anyway yeah. it's just how costly do you want to get there well let's get there as quickly as possible and yeah. and certainly i mean whoever the the individuals and I, I go back to april of last year i had some friends that were working in the nursing home in north vancouver where i think they had 12 or 15 of the residents die within a week and um, one of the nurses there said, well, you know, that's it's it was unusual because typically we lose that number of patients over a flu season, not in one week. But all those people would have died that flu season regardless. So I think the most vulnerable within our society and, and you know, granted, that was somebody's grandfather, grandmother, mother, father. And that's a sad thing that they passed. But it was their time. Their their due date had come. Their their life had come. You know, was was that uh, um, was that you know was a breath away from being extinguished from something, and COVID happened to be the means in which it ended. And so as as we move into this fall, yes, we have another cohort that moves into that category. But many of those individuals have already passed, and so the the numbers should be beginning to decline. Right now, people always say, "Oh, don't you know? You know, in the United States, there's been 40 children under four have died of COVID, which, okay, let's take that as true. I want to know what the health status of those 40 children was. But even if even if we say it was 40 healthy children, do you know how many people under four died in the United States last year? Take a wild guess. No idea. 1,200? 52,000. So, really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, wow. kids die from motor accidents. Homicides alone account for something like 800 deaths of children under four. Uh, uh in the in the United States, so I mean, forty people out of fifty-two thousand is really not a number that we should be shutting the world down for, right? No. So again, you can tell people the truth, forty, but if you don't tell them the whole truth, forty divided by fifty-two thousand, uh, you're really misleading them. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, listen, Professor Allen, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. You've, you've really filled in some of the blanks uh, of my investigation, which has leaned more on the medical side. And this is a really good look at uh, sort of the economic side and, and how that fits into the picture. Uh, I really appreciate your time this evening. Um, if listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, uh, where would I direct them? Oh, just, I'm so old. You can just Google my last name, Alan, or Doug Allen at SFU. Uh, Doug Allen at SFU, you'll, you'll, you'll pick it up. Okay, beautiful. Well, that's fantastic, sir. Uh, perhaps next time I'm down in the lower mainland, I'll uh, hit you up. We'll take you out for lunch and uh, I'd love to continue the discussion uh, offline. It's, uh, it's been a great, uh, great, great conversation. No problem. The, the only real thing that's improved at SFU over the last 40 years are the restaurants. Ah, well, the view, the views remained, uh, equally spectacular. The views remain the same. Yeah. But, uh, I always say, you know, I, I went to SFU as an undergraduate because okay. I grew up in the Fraser Valley. I'm just a farm boy who kind of found his way to academics. And I always say that, you know, when I was there in 1978, uh, they, they, there was only two cafeterias and you could get only three things. You could get a grilled cheese sandwich, you could get a cheeseburger, or you could get fish sticks. And all three things tasted like fish sticks. Oh, because they were all fried in the same deep fryer, probably. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that's that's a great way to end today. Well, again, again thank you so much for your time tonight, sir. And um, uh, God bless. And uh, perhaps we can continue the discussion offline at a later date. No problem. Thanks. Fantastic, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye.